From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. Stay tuned. My guest is Christina Hunter. She's a healing guide and writer who has spent over 10 years traveling the world, studying the transformative potential of expanded states of consciousness and exploring the intersections of psychology, plant medicine, and Buddhist meditation. She offers individual counseling and integration support for psychedelic and initiatory experiences. Christina is also the co-author of Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. So when and how did this journey of exploration into the realms of consciousness begin for you, and what inspired this interest for you? Yeah, well, nice to be here with you, Tony Young, and yeah, thanks for the question. 
I grew up in San Francisco in the Bay Area of California, and I was born in the early 80s, and I was born into a family that had a lot of community that were artists and musicians and ex, you know, kind of recovering hippies and people with lots of experiences. And so I grew up with like a psychedelic friendly atmosphere. And then when I got a little older in the 90s, I started going to dance parties and underground parties happening in the Bay Area. And people were taking medicines, you know, doing various substances as part of the party and the music scene. And what I noticed, even I was young, I was like 14, 15, 16 years old, is that people were having real, what seemed to me to be truly like healing experiences. And I was, you know, not always, of course, a lot of people were recreational and seemed zoned out or checked out. But I was also tracking and noticing that people were having what seemed like very connective, bonding, healing experiences. And I had the experience myself of a few friends opening up and telling me, you know, deep personal stories that they hadn't shared ever. And I was just really struck by that these uh, substances and, and also the atmosphere of the party and the you know, music and art was creating a space where people were opening up their consciousness and their hearts and their minds. So I felt really inspired by that right off the bat. And then later, when I went to college, when I was 19, I took off my third year from school and I went down to South America. And I originally intended to stay with a family and do a study abroad program but I decided that what I would rather do is travel around and explore and have experiences. And I wanted to go to the Amazon. And so I found my way to the Amazon. And that was before going down and drinking ayahuasca or spiritual psychedelic tourism was a thing. I found my way into the jungle and I found myself with a guide and staying with an indigenous family and having my first experience with ayahuasca. And I was just incredibly struck by it, actually having this experience in a what felt like its native context with ritual and preparation and support and integration. And I had a very powerful and fabulous experience. And that, I guess, really catapulted me more into studying these traditions and the history and really having my own experiences, which went on to include many trips back to South America and specifically working with ayahuasca and then over the years into other traditions as well. So that's what started me. So I'm very curious to hear about your own personal experience with ayahuasca. I have never done ayahuasca. Like you, in my early, well, mid and late teens, I started with LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, and then MDA a little bit later, and peyote, but ayahuasca was not on the map at that time, mm -hmm. at least not for me. And I'm very curious to hear about your personal experience with ayahuasca and how it has become a part of your life mm -hmm. from that experience, what you've integrated from that. Yeah. 
So that was starting in my late teens, and then I I actively was working with ayahuasca until my uh, late 20s, until I was about 27, and then things shifted. So that was about eight years. And since then, I, I have gone back to the Amazon and had experiences, but I've kind of shifted more into working with the Mazatec tradition. So mostly my early 20s, having these experiences with ayahuasca. And for me, oof, you know, all kinds of experiences. I am a very visionary type. Not everyone is very visionary. So I had a lot of visions and, you know, it was like seeing my dream world outwardly projected in my waking consciousness, which has always, for me, been very rich and imaginative and, you know, full of symbolism. So I got to just engage with all these beautiful visions that felt they were there to teach me things about myself. And I think for me, having come from a childhood where I was definitely working at that point in my early 20s with some unresolved traumatic experiences and challenges that I didn't quite have the language for yet and hadn't done much personal therapy at that point, I really had the experience of like being healed, of meeting beneficent beings and almost like being in the presence of grace and love and acceptance and something about, you know, that felt so right and familiar. And I had the great fortune of always being in very safe environments down in the Amazon where I found myself. I was guided well, or I, you know, I had good discernment with myself and where I went. But there would be you know, memories from my childhood, experiences, and then what felt like a greater intelligence, a greater benevolence, kind of explaining things to me, making sense of things, some sense of consolidating certain experiences and kind of a sense of resolution around experiences I'd had. And I would say one thing that, you know, still stays with me that was very powerful was at some point I had been down there and then I came back and was living in San Francisco in my early 20s. And I was working as a bartender and still, you know, going out and going to parties and, you know, being social. And I was drinking, not over drinking, but definitely socially drinking and kind of exploring more. And to the point where it wasn't, I can look back and say that was not very good on my, my health and my body and my mind at that young age. And at some point I went down to the Amazon, I was around 24. And I remember the first, journey I had at the place where I was spending a few weeks was this almost like the experience was like a montage vision in my visions of all these times I had been drunk or out of integrity with myself and a little sloppy or, you know, unconscious. And they were shown to me as if from the outside and the message, the real teaching that came through was like this grandmotherly energy saying, you know, is this really how you want to treat yourself? Is this what you want to do to your body and your mind? And I felt a very strong clarity that, no, that's not how I wanted to be treating my body, treating my mind. And in that moment, something really shifted of like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to use alcohol in that way anymore. And I'm really going to commit myself to the plants and to medicine and to healing. So that felt like a, you know, like a a gentle, loving slap upside the head. (laughs) Yeah, that that does sound pretty gentle, a gentle wake-up call. Mm-hmm. One thing that is striking me right now is this notion 
about the correlation between accessing the unconscious through ayahuasca and accessing the unconscious through dreams. You you spoke about having these visionary experiences that were very much like having dreams while you were conscious and awake. And I would love to hear your take on how that's occurring in terms of the intelligence involved in it. I know people speak of ayahuasca being a living, intelligent, a highly intelligent spirit. And when we dream, we're accessing our unconscious, our subconscious, which gives us access to our higher consciousness as well. I'm curious from your personal experience how you correlate the two, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least the way I can base it in my own experience and my exploration of my dream material and then the material, the content that I've made contact with through my psychedelic experiences, my visionary experiences. And it seems to me that the unconscious and, you know, it's almost like layers in the ocean and the unconscious is the dark depths of the ocean. And then the subconscious is, you know, somewhere in the middle coming closer to the light. And then we would call like our conscious, you know, normal day awake awareness is that surface of the ocean. And my experience is that things are always coming up from the depths as they're needed and as I'm ready to encounter them and to metabolize them, kind of integrate them into my life. And that can be, in my experience, memories or deeply held emotions from the past or even could say inherited in some way, you know, because I think we have our personal experience and then we have a more familial experience and then a cultural experience. So there's layers. But to just speak on the level of the personal, things come up as they're ready to, you know, to be integrated into the consciousness. And I feel that happens on its own through dreaming and even through waking life. You know, we're often engaging with our own unconscious and subconscious. But then when you bring medicines into it, something like ayahuasca, my experience is it really catalyzes the process. And why I think that is, one reason is that we're we're accessing greater awareness, our own greater awareness consciousness. And in a sense, there's more capacity and bandwidth for these deeper images and sensations and emotions to, you know, kind of work their way up towards the top to be understood and processed and integrated, ideally, in an ideal situation. Sometimes they just come up and if they're not well supported, they can create kind of an indigestion, I think, kind of a psychic indigestion. But yeah, they come up. So I think the medicines really catalyze the unconscious to start showing itself more and more. And I think that's something we can also show up for and invite, you know, a deeper experience with that. And I would add, you know, the book that we wrote, this book, Consciousness Medicine, we're we're really focusing in on the preparation for an integration of expanded states of consciousness. And 
I would say, you know, without the preparation, which includes also having a context for what happens in these experiences, these journeys, and without the support on the back end of integration, a lot of that unconscious material can come up and be very confusing and strange and overwhelming at times. So to have context and support, like you would if you're going to a therapist who works with dreams, you know, it's very difficult to understand our own dreams. So that's why we get support. It really helps to have another person, especially someone who's trained. Then we can really start to harvest, you know, really harvest and make sense of and weave it into our life and kind of do our homework of integration afterwards, which I think is really where the value is and is a very fun process. Yeah. Mhm. It made me think of I've I've heard about a few people who have had spontaneous awakenings and have not gone back and they talk about having a few years of extreme disorientation even though they were fully awake they just didn't have a context in which to contain it within their lives and they didn't have a guide or they didn't have a teacher who could help them contextualize it or integrate it. And that seems to be one of the main themes of this book is the importance of, well, preparation, of course, is extremely important, how we enter into these journeys and our relationship with plant medicines and our relationship with our own self and our intentions about where we want to go with our lives but the integration phase seems to be so critically important. I didn't have a formal integration process or certainly not a formal guide to help me integrate things, but I did have a very supportive community around me, and both of my parents had experiences with LSD and were very open-minded. And also, like you described yourself, I felt like I was well-guided and protected on an invisible level. So at least I felt safe through it all, even though I was outwardly, at least, very much on my own. So this process that you talk about, and this book is written very much like a guide for guides, you know, for this process, for these journeys. And for me, I found it to be a wonderful guide just for my own self-reflection. It gave me such a broad, you could say, inventory of aspects of my life and life in general to reflect upon. So I spent a lot of time while I was reading this book reflecting upon my life. And so many. How wonderful. Yeah, it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. I, I find myself doing that a lot with many of the books that I read for these interviews. Mm. But this book really gave me a beautiful format to do that in a very systematic way. And perhaps a good place to go now is to talk about the process, how you prepare people, you know, as a guide, how you prepare people for a plant medicine journey. And then after that, we can talk about integration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we wrote this book, you know, Francoise Blazette, my co-author, my teacher. You know, she spent many, many years studying in Mexico in the Mazatec tradition with her teacher, 
And so she has extensive experience doing ceremony down there, bringing groups down there, bringing people down there. And she's also had many different experiences in Sweat Lodge, and she's done a lot of dancing and dance retreats. And then I bring my experience, you know, from down in the Amazon and living with, spending time with indigenous families and groups as well as mestizo, which is, you know, different style of working with the ayahuasca medicine. I also bring a background in meditation and doing meditation retreat. And so as we were looking at the preparation process, and our wish was to really create a guide, like you say, for guides. And we really wanted to hold that openly. We wanted it to be something that people who are facilitating ayahuasca ceremonies up in the States, who are facilitating other plant medicine experiences, who are bringing people down to the Amazon or down to Mexico, just to really offer something that creates some context and some reference and some guidance around this preparation phase as well as the integration. So the preparation, you know, it all starts with screening for a a practitioner, a facilitator, a guide to meet their potential client and do a basic medical screening and to get a history and get a background and all significant events, traumas, surgeries, illnesses, to really start to get a sense of the territory that they're working with. As I say, map the territory. And that's so that the guide, the therapist, the facilitator knows when things come up in a journey, in a session, that they're going to have some sense of what might be showing up, what might be rising up, you know, however long that takes. Often, if you're down in the Amazon, in my experience, I would spend sometimes a week before we would do a ceremony. There's a family I've gone and spent time with over the years. And, you know, I'd stay with them three, four, five, six days before we would do a ceremony. And and they were tracking me. You know, they're watching me, talking to me about my life, how's it going with my family. And so it's like this, just kind of taking in, gathering information. And in that process, tracking, you know, what's, what's really up for the person. And, you know, what might be the purpose and the motivation coming into this journey, which some people know what it is when they come in. They're very clear. Maybe they're working with an illness or a particular psychological dynamic they really want to explore and work with. And, and some people come and they don't know. They just know they want to have a deeper spiritual experience or connect with a plant medicine or, you know, whatever the modality is. So then it becomes, as part of the preparation, also the guide facilitator's job to help the client or the participant clarify their intention and their motivation. And sometimes they call it a prayer. You know, it's like, what is your prayer or your intention, your motivation? Why? Why would you want to do this thing? And that's a powerful process for people. It's a process of kind of coming into truth and clarity with oneself. And I take it as far as sometimes I work with people who are going on a meditation retreat for a week and they signed up, they thought it was a great idea, their friends were doing it, and they want to talk to me about it a week before. And I ask them, I'm like, well, why? What do you want from this? What's your motivation? And they don't know. You know, they didn't really think about that. They're just throwing themselves right in there. And so then it's this great opportunity, like, well, let's really talk about what you want from this. And it's an invitation to really show up, show up for the journey, show up for the exploration. That's a crucial piece of preparation. And then I guess I would add to that, especially for journeys with plant medicines, 
there are certain restrictions that one should take, really, to be safe in themselves. So dietary, supporting and nourishing the body, getting ready, you know, depending on the tradition, depending on the medicine, there's specific, you know, limits and kind of preparatory guidelines to be safe, to be safe in your brain chemistry, to be safe in your body, and to be emotionally, psychologically prepared. You know, we're the people we've spent time with. It's a special time of leaving the normal daily life for however long, three days, five days, and preparing, you know, creating the vessel for which you're about to to take this little journey out of, you know, normal day-to-day life and, and go deep within, do some healing work. And it's also a way of just kind of preparing the soil, you know, kind of preparing the soil for what's about to happen. There's also an honoring and asking permission of the spirits to also help in creating a healthy and respectful set and setting for the experience, particularly if you're going into the jungle to do ayahuasca? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so down in the Amazon, one of the main protector plants is tobacco. And so everyone I've worked with that works with ayahuasca works with tobacco. And tobacco is considered the communicator kind of helps us humans communicate with the other plants, like a translator communicator. Tobacco is also a protector, you know, keeps us clean and protected. And also when people go into the forest to to do anything really, but especially to gather plants or do anything, you know, where they're going to be taking something, they're often bringing tobacco and either offering some tobacco or blowing the smoke of the tobacco it's both a protection for themselves and also an offering. The plant world respects the tobacco. And so they use the tobacco as a, you know, it's like a medium between the human realm, the, the unseen realm, the spirit realm. Down in Mexico, they use, in the Mazatec tradition, cacao beans. That's part of their tradition. And so it's customary that before you would do a ceremony, before you would work with the psilocybin mushrooms, you would take some cacao beans and make an offering. And again, it's this dual purpose. There's something about speaking your intention and offering your gratitude as you hold the beans and then you make an offering. It's also a way of kind of offering yourself to the local spirits, to the place and giving something back before you take. Because when we ingest, we're taking something from the earth. You know, we're receiving and it's very good to make an offering to make space for what we're going to receive. And, you know, through all different traditions, there's different ways of doing this. But you're right, that is always an aspect of preparation. It's something about, you know, showing ourselves to the local place and the local spirits and energies and speaking why we're there and making some gift, some offering, instead of just coming as a consumer and a taker because that never works out well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't work out well. It doesn't work that well up here either. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> and when you do this kind of work up here in the States, is there a corresponding ritualistic approach to that kind of honoring, offering, or asking for permission to enter into 
these expanded states of consciousness with entheogenic substances. For example, in an unrelated area, or a somewhat related, like in the Buddhist tradition, all of the work that we do, we offer it to the greater good. So that, once again, it's not a self-centered, egotistical practice. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that in a way that is meaningful for people up here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, up here, you know, what I'm doing with people is supporting people who are doing ceremony, you know, people who are going down to Mexico. I support people who go down to the jungle, to the Amazon, to do ceremony. And like I said, I hold a big frame around expanded states. I like to include meditation retreat and actual journeys, like trips, you know, where we're leaving the known and going into the unknown of any kind. And so when I am supporting people who are doing whatever kind of journey they're doing, it's, you know, it's always different and unique to the situation. Up in North America, they would use rice and cornmeal. Cornmeal is customary. And I also think of just something of value, you know, something of personal value that we can make an offering of. And wherever the place is that you're going, you know, if you're going to go do some solo retreat in the forest for a week or two weeks, you bring something. And when you get there, you make your little place of offering and make an offering to at the very beginning, it's a very good way to just like start whatever you're doing, whatever you're diving into, you, you start there with offering. And then like you said, I'm also coming from a Buddhist background, so I also like to end everything with an offering. Like at the very end, then offer it up for the benefit of all beings. And that's my approach. I don't put that on anyone else, but I like to, you know, suggest it as a why not, you know? Whatever you're doing, whatever healing, whatever deepening, whatever exploration you're in, it's for you as an individual, and you're also doing it, if you can connect in there, we're doing it for our families and our communities and the greater culture. And so to kind of make contact with that motivation, intention of it's an offering. And it's a powerful thing. It's kind of a, it's a reframe on the way a lot of us hold our experiences in this culture. Mm-hmm. I'm also very curious how you connected with Françoise and how you came to write this book with her. Well, it's quite a story. <laughs> <laughs> I love stories. Um, I love stories. Okay, well, I'll tell you my story. I'd say there's, there's an outer story and there's an inner story. I'll weave them together. The outer story is, you know, from a young age, I've been very interested in expanded states and healing and indigenous use of medicines and healing in these traditional contexts. And I spent this time traveling in my 20s down in South America, but I never found a teacher. I had people that I returned and worked with, but no one I really wanted to deepen in and study with. And so I made a prayer. And I was actually, I think, down in the Amazon and made a prayer to find my teacher, find someone that I really felt that connection with. And like a year or two later, I went to a talk where Françoise was teaching. And she was teaching and speaking about 
the Mazatec tradition who work with the psilocybin mushrooms and they're from Mexico. And I've heard of them, but I didn't feel any particular connection with that tradition. But as soon as I saw her speaking at this university in San Francisco, I felt a real heart connection with her. It was like a knowing, like, that's my teacher. So I knew I wanted to be around her and learn from her. I initiated a relationship with her and was going to start working with her and then eventually go on a trip with her to Mexico. And I got sick. At the age of 27, I was diagnosed with advanced cancer. And that turned my whole world upside down. And I entered about a year and a half of very intensive personal healing, which included surgery and chemotherapy and lots of alternative treatments. And so, you know, I wasn't doing any traveling or studying with anyone. I just really pulled in close with my family and a couple of friends who helped me through it. Had a lot of community support. And when I emerged from that, which I did, fortunately, thanks to Grace, <laughs> I was like 28 at that point, 29. And the first thing I did was I took this course at this university in San Francisco that Francoise was teaching. It felt like the first thing to re-enter the world, the social world, after being very much in a womb, in a almost like a cocoon for about a year and a half. And so I took this class with her, and she already had the idea to write a book. Someone had suggested it. So she was already thinking about that, wanted to record herself teaching, turn them into transcripts. That was the idea. And she'd asked this guy to record her and he came to the first class, he recorded the first class, and then he didn't show up for the second class. So I stepped up. I said, I'm going to record you. So I ended up recording all of her lectures for that semester course, and then I offered to transcribe them. So I transcribed all of these lectures, and then it was this moment of like, okay, she's ready to find someone to help write this book. And I, kind of despite myself, just told her, I'm going to write this book with you. And... I, at that point, was only a couple years out of this illness. I had never written a book before. You know, I was a writer. I've always been a writer, but I hadn't done a collaborative project. And she, I think just out of, like, radical compassion and love and something she saw, some possibility, she said, yes. And we began this process of working this material and starting to organize it and refine it and fill in what was missing. And the inner story that was you know, paralleling was that I had just come out of this illness and working with Francoise on this book became this focus for me. It gave me purpose. You know, I didn't have a career really at that point. I was doing some counseling and I was in counseling training, but I was a bit unmoored. And so it gave me purpose. It gave me focus. It gave me a project. And, you know, we'd spend a couple hours a week, an hour a week together, and we would be writing and working and and it just gave me this focus that became, as I look back, like incredibly healing for me and kind of created a thread that I could follow. And then over the years, because it was a start and stop process, my life filled out, my health improved, I regained my strength. And it took time. It took years. But this book became like this, I don't know, like it was pulling me towards something and the creative collaboration together, it created this thread of coherence over the years. And then at some point in our working together on it, which it turned out I really enjoyed writing and working with material and felt like a natural thing to be doing, 
there was this point where we almost like we stopped writing and then the book started kind of directing us, which I've heard from other writers and authors and artists. There's some point where it takes over and kind of tells you what to do in this magical way. And then it just kept unfolding and to the point where we found a publisher and got some editing help and it's just emerged into form. And now I'm sitting here looking at it and there's this sweet book that we wrote. If you're just joining us, my guest is Christina Hunter. She's the co-author of this book we've been talking about, Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Let's go to Mexico and your experience of the Mazatec culture and Julieta and Francoise, and what was that like for you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I've gone down a handful of times down to Mexico, and it's a different world. You know, they're this unique culture in that they live up in the high mountains outside of Oaxaca, and they're, you know, they're kind of nestled away up there. And as the story goes, when the Spanish came, they were one of the few indigenous groups that weren't wiped out. Their traditional practices weren't wiped out. They were hidden and didn't have contact for a long time, actually. They weren't easily accessible. So they're this culture that kept their traditional healing use with the mushrooms, which they call the Nino Santos. They actually kept it going. And, and so they say been unbroken for thousands of years, their use of the psilocybin mushroom in healing. And they're very connected with their place. I mean, they've been there for a long time. So I guess I can say what struck me is just how deeply interwoven they are with the place that they live. And so they're often, you know, making offerings. You know, they have their pilgrimage spots. And they have their sacred places that are woven into daily life. You know, they have their traditional ways of healing. And, you know, they have their songs and their language, which is a beautiful, almost fairy-sounding magical language. And they're kind of a, a secretive people. You know, they kind of keep to themselves. And I think that can be a little perplexing to Westerners going down. And I've also found this with people I've studied with in the Amazon indigenous groups. Like it takes time to develop a relationship and, and you show up and you basically you make your offerings, you know, you have to show up and slowly cultivate relationship. Things go at a slower pace and people aren't just jumping out to be your best friends. You know, it's like you show up and you you make your offerings and you start to develop a relationship over time. And so that's something that I feel like I've learned from, you know, being a Westerner and being from California where it's like, let's be best friends right off the bat. It's not like that down there. It's a slower pace. Julieta Francoise's teacher and the holder of our lineage, I think what I've learned from her, you know, what has struck me about her so much is She's playful. Like she would often just be smiling and laughing and joking and playing and kind of bringing a lightness to daily life. You know, just kind of poking fun at the seriousness that many people can take on, and especially us Westerners can come down with a seriousness. And at the same time, 
a really incredible deep faith in all, you know, in kind of the unfolding of all things, and especially in people's path of healing and their relationship with the medicine and in the ceremony, like a deep faith that, you know, the mushrooms know what they're doing, the plants know what they're doing, the spirits know what they're doing, the deep teaching of, like, just, you can relax into it, you know, with respect, you bring respect, you bring your preparation, and then trust the medicine, trust the healing. Her deep faith is what I've been touched by and what a lot of people who, who have worked with her over the years have been really touched by, just deep faith and her capacity to to pray, to really be an intermediary between this world and the spirit world, which is the traditional role of a curandera, which is what they would call her, or a, a healer, a, a shaman in that way, you know, that capacity to, to pray and to speak between the worlds which is something that people up here in the United States, that's just not something we have a lot of context for. What is that way of being? But in traditional cultures and context, that's a, that's a role, you know? It's not unusual. People understand that there are people who have that capacity to speak between the worlds. And that also includes speaking to the plants, being in communication with the plants, directing the plants how to heal someone's body. So she was a a master, you know, a maestro of that. And, yeah, total sweet, sweet woman. Did you learn any of that yourself? I'm really curious because right now I'm reading another book, which is very much along those lines about opening up to plants and nature through the heart to receive and to be able to communicate, to understand, to receive that language, that language that is so foreign to the Western world. Right, right. Which book are you reading? I'm just curious. Evolutionary Herbalism. Mm. It's just recently came out through the same publishing company that published Consciousness Medicine. They published the best books. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and so I, I would love to hear what you've experienced, what you've learned along those lines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think the core problem, you could say, or the, the core wound that so many of us in the West, in this, you know, the Western world, you could say the industrialized world, are are suffering with is a sense of disconnection of being separate from and that might show up as feeling disconnected from our families our community from ourselves right yeah and once we're disconnected from ourselves we're disconnected from everything exactly and when we track it back you know it's like if we had parents that were in a state of disconnection and grandparents that were in a state of disconnection you know, what I've found is if you keep tracking it back, at some point you hit people leaving their homeland, you know, the place where they lived for many, many generations because of famine or war, religious persecution, sometimes the pure spirit of exploration, but usually there's a reason. And when you track it back, I think there's this trauma that has happened for many people, if you go back three, four, five, six generations from leaving the land where our ancestors lived for 
many generations and had deep relationship with the actual place. And that includes the mountain, you know, the nearby mountain or the hills, the river, the trees that grow there, the plants that grow there, the herbs, the medicinal herbs that grow there. And, you know, if you go back in any lineage, in any culture's, you know, history and background, like if you go back far enough, there were people who were the tenders of these connections and who knew how to use the healing plants and knew which river you needed to go and swim in to cleanse yourself of a particular thing. You know, there were these healers and these knowers all through Europe, you know, all different depending on the place and the group, but all, all through the world as people, you know, leaving those traditions and also the church coming in and other forces that killed a lot of the people that held the knowledge and also pushed a lot of it underground to just be safe. And people leaving their places, leaving their homes, a lot of it was forgotten. And this sense of feeling disconnected from oneself, I think for a lot of people it roots into feeling disconnected from place. And so then as we're trying to find healing in ourselves and reconnect, most of us, you know, we haven't been here for 10, 20 generations like the Mazatec have. Wherever here is for us, for me, it's Northern California. And so this process of reapproaching place and the natural world and the trees that grow here and the plants that grow here and the mountains and the rivers and the sacred places here, you know, it's, it's an act of kind of repairing that, what I think is the original disconnect. And I think it's a first step in starting to reconnect with the plants and, you know, elements of nature is the first step for most of us is feeling the grief and the pain around the disconnect, actually admitting that we've lost something. And it hurts. It's an injury. And to grieve that, Stephen Jenkinson, this author, speaker, teacher, you know, he says us in the modern world are spiritual orphans in a way. We're orphans. We have to admit that we're orphans. You have to feel kind of the pain of that before we can start to reconnect and reclaim and and do the healing of reconnecting with the natural world and community and our family and our culture. So there's that. And then the actual practice of reconnecting, which I think we're actually, you know, we're, we're in this moment of like, it's the worst of times and it's the best of times. There's, there's so much challenge in the world and we're facing so many, um, you know, big questions and, you know, serious issues that need our attention and care and advocacy. But we're also at a time where, you know, at least you could say in this country, there's this like huge resurgence of interest in, in the plants and in reconnecting with the intelligence of nature that's all around us and amazing herbalists, amazing teachers and books and resources. And, you know, I would say what I've learned in reconnecting with the plants in particular in the natural world, you know, the first thing is slowing down. It's like slowing down and quieting down and simply you know, it's like how you would be with someone you've lost contact with or you never had contact with and you actually want to develop some kind of relationship. 
like making offerings. You might start by making some offering and humbly requesting for them to show themselves, you know, to like, could we, could we get to know each other, you know? And I think that like a humility and a, you know, really feeling the sincerity of the request of like, I want to reconnect with this dimension of life for my own healing and to kind of bring some healing to the interdependence of all of life. And that starts with a humble request and, and showing up. And then there's the learning, you know, it's like if you want to get to know the plant, like actually start learning about it and learn what there is to know. And maybe that looks like connecting with an herbalist or reading in a book about herbalism about that plant, but like, where does it grow? What is it like? What does it do? You know, what are the traditional uses? How have people worked with it? Something I love is, at least with the medicine plants, the psychedelic plants, is learn their songs, you know, like at least listen to their songs or, you know, kind of connect with the music that is associated with them. Listen to it or learn some words of the language of the people who still have an intact connection with the plant. You know, they say one way that we humans can connect with the plant world is through songs. It opens our heart, it opens us up, and we're creating sound, which is a vibration, which you know, all beings understand that and we can actually sing to the plants and they can actually sing back to us if we're able to listen and hear them. So I could go on, but... (laughs) (laughs) That's a beautiful thing. And a few years ago, I interviewed Rachel Harris about ayahuasca Mm. and she talked a lot about the songs and how important and how beautiful vehicle it is for connecting with the spirit of the plants. And Francoise talked about that as well with the mushroom ceremonies, that they also sing, they also have songs, mushroom songs, much like the ayahuasca songs. Yeah. And I wonder, do we have anything like that in our Western culture? Mm. You know, we have Native peoples in this country who still have their traditional use of plants and have their songs. Right, but, you know, I'm, I'm meaning the transplants, us mm-hmm. usurpers. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we have stories and we have myths. And what comes to my mind is like some of the songs my mom sang me when I was little nursery rhyme songs and those are songs in the culture like they go way back actually a lot of them and even the fairy tales right the... that's what just occurred to me just just as mm-hmm. you were saying that that we do have these old european traditions of the fairy tales especially you know the grimm's fairy tales and they're old yeah they go way before any written versions of them yeah They could be thousands of years old as well. Right. Yeah, they go way back. And, you know, from a young age, when you start reading those fairy tales or hearing those stories, like there's archetypes and there's energies in there. And it's a way of starting to teach us about our own psyche, our own being, what's out there in life. They're like spiritual teachings. You can enjoy them as a child and throughout your life you you can gain, you know, successive levels of understanding. Right, they kind of keep unfolding, keep teaching. Mm-hmm. 
and I think they teach, you know, a lot of the myths and the fairy tales, you know, there's layers of understanding and, you know, they also teach us about kind of the unseen world in ways or the deeper unconscious and deeper psyche. And, you know, they have that kind of reflective capacity to teach us about ourselves and as much as we're able to take in, to receive and to learn. And that's what seems to unfold. And also it can connect us to our our traumas, our wounds. Exactly. And give us context, you know, what we what we miss not having the stories the stories in so many cultures the plants weave in to the cultural stories the myths and then that also serves to bring some healing to that deep wound of disconnection like oh I weave into a bigger story you know which is what connecting with the plants does you know oh I I weave in you know and the plants help me and then I help them and we work together and I think the myths and the stories do that too. And, you know, I'll just say when I was in my late 20s and I got very sick, as disorienting an experience anyone could have. And at some point, one of my mentors, he shared with me a couple stories, myths of where the hero, the protagonist, has to go into the underworld. And I'd kind of, you know, I've heard myths and stories before that, but I had not really made the connection of like, oh, there's this archetypal story, this arc of leaving the above ground day-to-day world and going into the underworld and truly facing death. And this happens in plant medicine journeys where we face it on kind of a psychological level, the fear of death. And then when people actually get quite sick, you face it on a very real physiological level. But we have all these myths and stories of going down and going into the underworld, facing death, and that's the place where we find ourselves. We find our power, we find our true capacities and qualities and our strengths, and we start to make our way back up into the land of the living and integrate those gifts and integrate those experiences, a changed person, a completely different person. And I just say that when when someone started actually kind of reminding me and, and sharing some stories with me, it just completely contextualized the experience I'd just been in and gave me the sense of faith, not hope, but faith. Like, I'm not the first one who's gone through this kind of thing, and I'm not going to be the last one. This is part of the human experience. People have been having it for thousands of years and writing about it and telling stories about it. Whether I live or die, there's an arc here. You know, there's a story here and something on the human level. So it's like, okay, I'm not all alone. I'm not the only one. That's such powerful and important thing to discover and something yeah. that many people don't get in this culture at all, particularly yeah. that invisible realm, the shadow side, the unknown realms that we are often conditioned from an early age to avoid like the plague. Right. The fear of the dark, fear of the the deep unconscious and all that lurks there. The boogeyman, the boogeyman who is us, essentially. Right. Those parts of us that were either terrified of or were so terrified of that we buried them so far down that we have no 
idea of what they really are and how important they are to us and with no cultural tradition of how to approach them. Yeah, and without those myths and reminders that when you go down into the depths, you know, and it's interesting, even in fairy tales, like you usually have some kind of guide or animal or creature who who tells you where to go or who gives you some magical something to take with you as an offering and you know you go down and or often in stories there's some kind of protection you bring with you some way to protect yourself and in the stories you always return you know it's like there might be a real confrontation down there that's real you know when we go into those dark places it's a real confrontation and there's a full circle there's a return you know we come back from the depths and it's beautiful how this just totally translates to journeys, you know, ceremonies and journeys with plant medicine, expanded states of consciousness is, it's a full circle. We we return, you know, we don't stay there, we return back. And it's only through going into those deep, dark territories in our own mind, our own psyche, our own heart, that we come back with power. We actually become more powerful, stronger, more courageous, and we get to bring that back into our life and enjoy the benefit of it and be of greater service from it. Mm-hmm. And get to actually know ourselves, get to know ourselves. We don't just naturally know ourselves. We have to get to know ourselves and our deep places. And so, you know, these stories and then how it just perfectly translates, that's what a journey is. And and when we come out, you know, this final piece of integration, right? It's how do we then integrate back into life? take what we've found in the dark depths and actually make it usable and practical and make sense of it. If you're just joining us, my guest is Christina Hunter. She's the co-author of Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. There are numerous fairy tales where people get trapped in these underworld places for many, many years and and don't escape or don't earn their way out until much, much later in their lives, and they really have to pay their dues. And that fits in many other traditions as well, that you have to establish a practice and you have to really dedicate yourself to exploring your inner and undersides and... In the meditation traditions, you, you have to sit for many years, and, and there's different approaches. But with ayahuasca and the mushroom, we're getting a much more concentrated, much more powerful, not exactly instantaneous, but to some degree, there is a very instantaneous quality to the experience, it being so powerful and so revelatory that we're catapulted through perhaps decades of work that would be required in other traditions. So the integration process is so much more important because when you're going through a very long process with some of these other traditions, you're getting to integrate it. It's kind of like walking across the country as opposed to flying across. You're getting to integrate your experience along the way. 
So this integration process with ayahuasca and or with the mushrooms, talk about how how that works considering the intensity and the power of those journeys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, as you said, you know, the real difference, you know, if, if someone goes on a meditation retreat for a week, it can be very intense, you know, depending on the practices you're doing and the field you're in. If it's a very potent shared field where you are, it can be very evocative. It can bring a lot up. So what can happen in a meditation retreat, or I was at a Qigong retreat for 10 days two months ago, and it was very powerful. I was doing Qigong every day, and things were definitely happening. They call it, in that tradition, qi reaction. From doing a lot of practice, start to kind of evoke material out of our bodies, out of our psyche, from just kind of moving that much energy and breath and doing that much meditation. But the nice thing when you're doing a meditation retreat or a qigong retreat or, you know, something like this is you can slow down if your experience is getting a bit amped up or feels like a little more than you can integrate. You can slow it down just by doing some normal activity. When you're taking a plant medicine, we're going into a journey, you know, once you've taken the sacrament, once you've ingested, you're going you know, you're going and it can happen at a very fast pace and, you know, it's an amplified, magnified, whether it's four hours or eight hours, a lot happens, a lot comes to the surface and there's really no stopping it. There's ways to kind of slow yourself down and find your current definitely and work with it, but it's kind of a catalyzed experience. And so following any journey inward, then we out of that into the integration phase and it's the time of you know bringing meaning to making sense of connecting the dots all the pieces and parts that have opened and come to the surface for them to kind of recalibrate realign and kind of make sense of the whole experience and where you're landing and so again it's a process that's best done either with guidance with a guide with support or even in community you know you can do integration as a community as a small group or larger group and the integration process it's going to usually involve sharing your experience you know it would start for each individual on reflecting on your experience writing down your experience whatever that was kind of writing it down reflecting on it looking for themes looking for what stays with us, you know. Some things kind of rise up to the top of the surface and then they they just settle back down. They're not quite ready to be understood or worked with yet. But the things that stay with us two days later, three days later, a week later, just noticing what those themes are, if they're particular memories or particular people that have come up in our minds that we really keep thinking about. And then the value of connecting whatever that kind of content we're working with is with what our original motivation was. What was our intention going into whatever experience we went into and trying to, like we use this word decipher, you know, there's a certain kind of deciphering or decoding. So if your intention was to bring more healing to your relationship with your parents and then the experience contained, you know, you just found yourself enraged and angry or sad and grieving, 
you know, afterwards it might be confusing. Like, what do those two have to do with each other? Well, you start to ask questions and be curious with that. And having some support, a therapist, a facilitator, a guide, kind of connect the dots there. It's like really weaving a coherent story of why what came up for you came up for you. I can share from my experience that in some of my own work since this illness I had in my late 20s that I mentioned, I had an experience in a few journeys I did down south come up of like feeling paralyzed, like kind of tapping into the feeling of paralysis. And I noticed how even in my day-to-day life, sometimes I was making contact with it, with this feeling of just like frozen energy in my system, some sense of stuckness or paralysis. And at some point in my work, I made the connection through when I was getting some good guidance and support that when I had surgery, when I was sick, I had been paralyzed. I had been anesthetized. And for a few days, because of the way my surgery went, I was a few days in an anesthetized state. And what I uncovered was, oh, like that experience I had, it got lodged in my tissues, in my body memory. And it kept kind of coming up asking for kind of resolution and to be consciously made aware of and worked with. And for me, when I made that connection and got clear, like, okay, there's some work to do here and clearing this, you know, it's kind of like a surgical or medical trauma, you would call it. It actually started to just dissipate and release. And there's something that's very powerful about becoming aware of the connection. Like this is not just some strange experience of paralysis, like I actually had that experience and it has gone unresolved in a way, you know, like I never really attended to that. I just carried on with my life because everything was so busy at the time. And I would just say after kind of working that material, it dissipated, you know, it just started feeling a lot more movement, flow and openness, an ongoing journey. But um, that was part of the integration of making sense of this kind of strange sensation experience I was having repetitively in a couple different journeys I had. So, Interesting how simple awareness can be so powerful. Awareness is the ultimate medicine. And, you know, I'd love to add, you know, I think this approach of looking at our experiences with plant medicines and other expanded states of consciousness Learning this way of approaching them with preparation and following them with integration and attention and loving care after we have these experiences, it's a way of self-empowerment. You know, we live in a time in a culture where we're guided towards just being consumers and just taking what's given to us or what's presented to us and just having an experience and carrying on to the next experience of consuming and it's actually a disempowering one and then you know we become dependent on some outer substance or activity or entertainment or media to fill us for a moment and then we need the next thing and and this other approach that we're presenting in this book this other way which is a traditional way is something about taking back ownership and showing up for ourselves and our experience and and getting really clear with why we're doing what we're doing and kind of slowing the whole process down. And it takes a commitment to self to do that and to have the care and the self-love to seek out good 
supportive set and setting and a guide or facilitator, you know, someone's going to support our process. And it's a powerful thing to do to get to know ourselves, to unfold ourselves, to develop and evolve ourselves and, and to become healthier, clearer, stronger humans that then be on the path of having more capacity to, you know, show up in the world in the way we want to show up. And if we're here to be of service, to have more capacity to be of service and help others and be creative and whatever the issues are that we're passionate about to have more psychological, emotional bandwidth to show up for those issues. And I really think of personal healing as, you know, kind of an act of resistance against, you know, being coerced or, you know, pushed into just being consumers or mindless cogs in the machine. It's like we think for ourselves and love ourselves and prepare ourselves and then take the care and the time to integrate the experiences, the deep, powerful healing experiences we're having. It's a powerful path to take and fun, really fun. I want to add that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Do you have time to talk about your Buddhist meditation experience and how that fits into all of this? Yeah, sure. Great. So I found plant medicines in my early teens. And I also found the Buddhist teachings around the same time. And these days, I really feel the most connection with the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And I've brought in a couple other teachers, you know, a couple other teachers I listen to, I, I go spend time with occasionally. There's one here in the Bay Area, Anab Chuptin, wonderful Tibetan teacher. I follow and appreciate Reggie Ray's work from Colorado and his inclusion of the body, somatic-based meditation. So I suggest his work as an entry point to a lot of people that are just coming into meditation, and especially people coming with any trauma background. And now I have a great Buddhist community, Sangha, in the Bay Area, and we have a nice little contingent of people who are longtime meditator Buddhists and who are also explorers with plant medicine, who have gone down to the Amazon or done their own explorations up here in the States. And so that's a fun contingent, you know, to be with other people who are exploring both of these paths and see what people are discovering and finding. And what a lot of people seem to land is really finding that the practice of meditation and these Buddhist teachings and practices, they come from places like India, China, Japan, Korea, Tibet, Vietnam. They're coming from places where the people there have a strong connection with the earth, you know, they have, like we were saying before, a sense of place, a sense of culture and connection with the land, and thus just a different experience of being in a human body with the place than I do, at least, and those of us who have left our homelands and now live here in the United States. And so there's a embodiedness that they have that then when you bring meditation and practices of opening the heart of breathing through the body, focusing the mind on the breath of opening into pure awareness. These are practices that in these countries where they come from, 
they're coming from a people that are very embodied and connected with the earth. And so as these practices have made it to this country, you know, out of their birthplaces, I think there's been a little schism or issue of people receiving these teachings not being so embodied and not having such a connection with the earth or place and running the risk of doing these really powerful practices without like a foundation or an anchor within them. And they can be difficult, you know, doing pure awareness practice without feeling your body on the earth, feeling your ground can be a little disembodying or ungrounding. And so where the plant medicines come in and studying or spending time with a indigenous culture or context of using the medicines and also the, the herbal healing medicines is it starts to heal or teach us again about this connection with the earth and our place on it and our interdependence with it. And I think it starts to fill in a missing piece for a lot of meditators and Dharma practitioners. You know, when we take plant medicine, we're taking earth into our body. You know, we're taking something that grows into our body and it's very earthing and grounding and settling, especially if it's a supported process, a supported experience. And then on the flip side, having a bigger frame or view of awareness of the awakening of the heart and the mind, they create a real context for doing these experiences, you know, doing journeys with plant medicines or other types. You know, it's a path. It offers a path for people. And I find that really useful. Oh, we're not just doing experiences for the heck of it. Like, what about taking these journeys and exploring these experiences in order to be more open-hearted, to have more clarity and wisdom, to get along better with the people in our lives and be better humans, and ultimately to be more awake, you know, be more present, be more here. So the Buddhist path offers that context to the journeys, which is also a gift. So I think they work really beautifully together, very uh, synergistic like that. I love the way you've integrated all of that together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the way you've been talking about all of it has been really wonderful. It sounds like the process of writing the book has probably really helped clarify all of those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, writing the book and also just being curious. Being curious, and I would add, like, suffering. Like, really, personally, having the experience of suffering in my life and wanting to know if it's possible to ease that suffering. And from a young age, seeing beings and teachers and elders who, oh, there's something, there's some tricks here. There's ways to work with the challenges and the hardships that come in life. Even the big ones, like getting a cancer diagnosis. You know, there's teachings and ways that we can learn to not suffer so much. You know, pain is inevitable, but how do we relate with it? And there's a lot of teachings that come with the plant medicines, as well as in the Buddhist teachings of how to work with and transmute our challenges and not be so, you know, bowled over and stuck in, in the suffering of it and how to then move towards greater joy 
enjoyment of life, fun, connection, family, sangha, community. You know, how do we open up into these wonderful dimensions of life that we all have the right to enjoy? In a sense, take ownership of our experiences, not that we can control the things that happen to us in life, but we do have some power over how we respond and who we are that shows up in response and how we make sense of things and how do we, you know, really invite our experiences in as teachers and teachings. It's up to us. We have that choice. We can do that even with very challenging experiences. And the more we work on ourselves, I'm finding anyways, through therapy, through my own journeys, through my own healing, the more fun it becomes, you know, the more interesting and the more spacious and fluid it becomes. And that's inspiring. That's motivating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had the same experience. I think that's an experience many people have in expanded states of consciousness, seeing the big picture. Now, a little more understanding, a little more compassion, a little more patience with those who may have done wrong to us in some way or hurt us or abused us. Like seeing the big picture and for many people, naturally arising compassion. When we actually perceive the confusion and delusion a lot of people are coming from, there's a naturally arising kind of compassion. And in that process, it can really loosen us out of feeling like a victim and be re-empowering, you know, re-empowering. Being in our forgiveness is very empowering, very healthy, and not feigning forgiveness, but actually finding our way to a place where we can have resolution and, and let go, in a sense, of, you know, the things we hold on from the past, because it's, it's hard on us. Mm -hmm. Right, the suffering part of it. Like, I think the old saying is, Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Right. <laughs> you know, I really set myself up with such a wonderful apprenticeship, a way of learning, you know, this comprehensive approach here. I got to just, whoa, like, immerse myself. Yes, and what a wonderful person to work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty fabulous. <laughs> and you mentioned being a part of this lineage. What a powerful powerful lineage, this Mazatec lineage with Julieta. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, one thing that's unique about it, it has a lot of women. One of the reasons why I didn't feel like I found my teacher in the Amazon and didn't really, really connect is there are women healers, you know, women ceremony leaders, coranderas, but it's very male-dominated. You know, a lot of the leaders, the shaman, the, the healers, you know, those who work with plants are men. And in the Mazatec tradition, there's a lot of women. And that's unique, actually. So to weave in with a lineage, with a woman teacher, and her teacher was a woman, and then her teacher was a woman, you know, that's rare. And that has been really just healing for me, really nurturing and healing. And I find it very healing for me. And I get so much gratification and, and joy just from talking with so many powerful women who are doing the work that they're doing, and this world needs it so desperately. Mm -hmm. The male dominance has, well, we see the result of it. Mm -hmm. Right. We need balance. Right, yeah. And from the men, too, you know, 
mm-hmm. the, the feminine, you know, the, the nurture and the care and the slowness. We need it from the women teachers and we need it from the men too. We're all, you know, calling it forth because the world, the world is needing it for sure. And it's mm. happening. It seems to be happening. It does. Yeah. And we might even survive. And even if we don't. Right. It's been a wonderful journey. Yeah. Right, right. And being in this moment of, it's like, we're in a pressure cooker, but you know, like whatever gifts are in there, whatever genius is in there, whatever you have to offer, it seems, you know, the, the, the atmosphere, the time and the moment here on earth seems to be just kind of pushing it. You know, people are being called and moved, like now's a good time. Now is the time. Yes. And it's all been unfolding in a big way in in the last 60-some-odd years, having the mushroom being made available to the West, Albert Hoffman's discovery of LSD, the iron bird flying to the West to bring the Dharma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely a greater intelligence at work. It's hard to imagine that this is all for naught. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's impossible for me to imagine that at this point. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, well, it certainly shows like the plants, all the plant medicines are coming up, you know? Like, this is a tradition, right? Like, the, the tradition with the psilocybin mushrooms and the mazatec, like, it's really been underground for a long, long, long time. You know, the mushrooms reside underground. You know, they stay close to the earth and there's something happening. They're fruiting up and it's not just us writing this book, right? It's like all the studies that are happening and around the world, the research and, and, you know, and the amazing results that are happening, you know, people starting to pay all this attention to, to the psilocybin mushrooms and the other plants. They're, they're coming up. They're showing themselves. You know, I think they're rising up to, to, to teach us. You know, to guide us, hopefully, back towards interdependence and inner being and reclaiming and restoring some sense of vitality and health as a culture, as a people. They're coming up as a much-needed intelligence and ally right now on the planet. It seems. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the psilocybin mushrooms. I mean, you know, fungi are adapting to the toxic conditions that humans are creating. It's as if the fungi are partners with us and they're willing to do whatever it takes to help all of us survive as a greater planetary family. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, they say fungi were here before the plants. They predate the plants, they predate the animals, the humans. So as Francoise says, they are our older brother and sister. The mushroom consciousness is like our older brothers and sisters. And they're here to guide us and to help us if we can listen and receive and be guided. Mm-hmm. You know, mycelium, it's the underground network of the mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And it very much looks like our nervous systems, the way that the neurons, our brain and our entire nervous system, the way they branch out and, and connect and grow. And it's through the mycelium that the intelligence of the mushrooms grows forth and all the mushrooms connect underground through the mycelium. 
And it's why the mushrooms, I think, why they teach in working with them about connection, about communication, about staying close to the earth and being one with the earth and connecting with the other plants. You know, they're really, through the mycelium, these vast connectors of many species of trees and flowers and plants all in the forest and basically anywhere that there is mycelium, which is most places. They say it covers much of the earth down in the soil. And it seems that we're children of the mycelium as well. Mm-hmm. We are the mycelium children. Yep. Mm-hmm. And they're very patient and loving with us. Mm-hmm. We need a lot of patient, loving care, don't we? We do, yeah. Gentleness and patience and also some pokes and some prodding, and they do that too. Playfully poke us, like, hey, come on now, people. Come on, humans, let's do this. So, yeah, the sweetness and also the kind of playful mischievousness. It's been wonderful talking with you. Mm. Thank you so much Mm. for all of your time. Mm. My pleasure. That was Christina Hunter. She's a healing guide and writer who has spent over 10 years traveling the world and exploring the intersections of psychology, plant medicines, and Buddhist meditation. She offers individual counseling and integration support for psychedelic and initiatory experiences. And she's the co-author of this book we've been talking about, Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening until next time have a wonderful week